following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, um, a lack of confidence is not often a recipe for success. It just isn't. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about um, confidence as opposed to humility or anything. That's not what I'm referring to here. I'm just talking about confidence at its base level. When a person is not confident, oftentimes it's difficult for them to be successful. You know, um, when you're dealing with a young competitor, whether that's a son or a daughter, I'm talking about a little athlete, you know, that maybe lives in your home, or so on and so forth. Maybe you have said these words. I know that, that Don and I have said these words somewhat recently, and maybe you have as well. If you're a coach, I know you've said these words before. It's this. And we used to have a little chair in high school. I'm not going to do it. All right? Um, but but the, the gist of it is this. Be aggressive. Okay? Just, just get out there, whether it's the field, whether it's the court. Please get out there and be aggressive. Now, here's the deal. I often use my athletic exploits of youth as a negative example. Because I wasn't the best at being aggressive out on the court. I was known, I was one of those, maybe you know these people, they, they're, 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 they're practice superheroes, all right? Like in practice, they're amazing. And you put them on the court during the game, and it's like, that is not the same person. I had a coach tell me that. What happened since yesterday? That is not, you knew what you were doing yesterday in practice, but I don't know what it is about getting out there on the court for me, it wasn't the field because I wasn't a football player, but I, I and, and it just like, it just like evaded me. It just like went away. It's, I, I wasn't confident. That's the biggest part of it. You see, confidence has consequences. And the confidence I'm talking about right here is legitimate confidence, okay? Because there is also confidence that is not founded on anything that's real, that has consequences as well. Somebody overly confident without anything to back it up. Okay, that, that's kind of, that, that, those aren't the best consequences in the world that happens in that situation. But here I'm talking about legitimate confidence. Confidence in what is real. And when you have confidence in what is real, the consequences are incredibly powerful. And we're going to be told that in... 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me tell you a little bit what's going on here. This is, we, we get from Scripture, we understand that Paul wrote this church in Corinth. He, this is a letter written to a church. And at the church in Corinth, he wrote them at, at least three times. We have two of those letters recorded in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But the a thing that we need to keep in the back of our mind that helps us understand some of what Paul is writing is this. The church in Corinth had a pride problem. Okay? That's like kind of that confidence thing without a lot to back it up. So he had to address that in some different ways. Part of the problem is this, is they did not think that Paul had the authority of an apostle to teach in the way that he taught. You see, Paul was not the most, at his own words, was not the most impressive looking or sounding individual. He wasn't, and he had his doubters. And, and the reason that you see in First and especially Second Corinthians, Paul defending himself so much is because Paul and his message were somewhat synonymous. When they attacked Paul, they weren't just attacking him, they were attacking his message, and his message was Jesus, the gospel. 
So he defended it very, very much. And when we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 4, moving into chapter 5, he's kind of in the middle of one of these places where he is defending his authority as an apostle. And in the middle of this, we get a glimpse of what God has done and what that means for our future. Now, I told you we're not going to the Gospels, but i got to lean back on it just for a second. In John chapter 14, we see Jesus speaking to his closest followers. It's a passage that you are probably familiar with. And Jesus tells them, he says, I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and bring you with me to that place. Right? And what we see taking place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a little bit more to that story. The work of Jesus and the work of his father as well. You see, he told his closest followers that he's going to prepare a place for him. What was that place? The place was home. He was home, and he's going to come and get them and take them home. When you look at First or Second Corinthians, and if I ever say First Corinthians, well, I need to be careful here because I'm going to say First Corinthians 15. You're just going to have to jive with me. So hopefully, I don't I don't tell you the wrong place. All right. If I ever say chapter five, look to Second Corinthians. If I say chapter fifteen, look to First Corinthians because it's going to get thrown around a little bit today. All right. So in Second Corinthians chapter five, we look at these, break these first 10 verses of this down. We're going to see a couple of things. You could even write these in your Bible if you want. The very first thing we're going to see in the first few verses is this. We are told as followers of Jesus to be confident. Let's take a look at it. Verse one, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. For he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Okay, take a look at verse 1, and there's a way in which Paul describes our life in this world, and he says, in this world, where we reside is a tent, and he wasn't talking about tent poles and canvas, okay? He was talking about these things we wear, our bodies, as a tent. You know something? I find this out more and more. I'm approaching, I'm knocking on the door of 45 now. There was once upon a time in my life that I thought 45 was ancient, okay? Ancient. Like, that's old. You are old, okay? Quit shaking your head, Mike. Yes, because you're there too. You're that close, all right? So, anyway, but... As I get here myself, I'm like, well, that's not that old, is it? I mean, really, truly, it's not. Here's the thing, though. We just cannot ignore this fact as we age. There's one word that describes our bodies, and it's this. Temporary. (laughs) Temporary. They're not going to last. They're just not. It's just the way it is. 
And by Paul saying this thing that we are at home in right now being a tent, this is a great visual used by Paul. Donna and I, right before we got married, we were on our honeymoon and we went to Bass Pro in Springfield and we bought a tent. It was an awesome tent. We, I never will again, probably, we'll never spend that much money on a tent. We got some Bass Pro cards for, for wedding gifts, you know? So we went and we bought this, this amazing tent made by Columbia. I mean, this thing has sealed seams, you know, has, it has the, the waterproof tarp type material that goes up really, really high so that if you don't dig the trench around your tent, you're not going to get flooded out and stuff like that. I mean, this thing is nice. I don't think we've used it more than six or seven times total, all right? Now, it didn't hurt the fact that a year and a half, two years after we got married, we got our first camper. So it's like, when you get a camper, forget the tent. That's for the kids when they come along one day. But I will tell you, even this, our girls don't use that tent a lot. They used it a couple times this past year, but there's kind of a reason for it. The thing is temporary. I mean, it's not going to last forever. We spent quite a bit of money on it. I'd like it to last for a while, so we won't use it. We'll just leave it. (laughs) If you don't use it, it'll last forever, right? I mean, Paul uses a great word right here because we have to use these things we're walking around in. Therefore, they wear out. So what he does to contrast this picture that he's painting, in the same verse, he says this. says this how this tent, which is our house, is torn down. He says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That is an incredible, another great picture that he uses. And this, this idea of a building signifying permanence, all right? Like I said, we set up that tent a few times in the backyard last year, but nobody's staying in that tent when a Kansas thunderstorm rolls through in July, Right Now, some of you are like, well, I've done it before on the church camp out. <laughs> but in our backyard, it's not going to happen because you can just roll right into the house. It's stable. It's going to stay. It seems permanent. Now, what God builds is permanent. And the reason it's permanent is because of him. He is the maker. And he is making a permanent residence for us. Now, a little bit more about that residence here in just a second. Let's go back to focusing here where we are in this life. Look at verse 2. There's a word used in verse 2 that we'll see used again just a couple of verses later. It's this word. New American Standard translates it groan. Groan. All right. Do you, do you remember this from, from English class? Now, I'm not saying you don't know what the word groan means, all right? But occasionally in reading, you know, you will come upon a word that you don't know the definition of that word. And these days, what do you do? You Google it, all right? But, but back when I was a kid, you didn't have that. And if you didn't have a dictionary handy, an English teacher would tell you to find out, to do, there's clues to finding the meaning of that word. You look at the context. You look at what comes before it. Look how it's used. Look what comes after it, all right? This word groan that Paul uses here, it's the exact same Greek verb that he uses to describe his feelings of missing others. He uses a word, now we translate a little bit differently, but the Greek word is the same in several, the close of several of his letters. I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was groaning with anticipatory thoughts, saying, I will see you again. And I look forward to the day I get to see you. 
again. It's a groaning that anticipates. And there's something very important about that. Moms, do you know anything about groaning that anticipates? You know more about that than any guy ever will. Moms, have you ever been in a place where you were groaning, all right, in anticipation for the arrival of something, or more specifically, someone, okay, and try to tell your husband about it? He's like, "Uh, he was over like me in the corner trying not to pass out at the time, you know. I'm talking about a birthing room. That's what I'm talking about, folks. You haven't been there yet, young men, husbands? (laughs) Good luck to you. Um, So, but moms understand that, that groaning of anticipation. Now, when you look to verse 4, this verb is used in a little bit different way. Look at it here. For indeed, while we're in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened. It's a little bit more of a negative sense right here. You see, life takes a toll on these tents we're walking around in. It does. The aching, the aging, and to be completely upfront with you, the arguing. Does your body argue with you? And I know where you're going to with this at times, especially if you're like me and you're not a morning person, all right? My body argues with me every single time the alarm goes off, okay? Now, that's not the arguing I'm talking about. I'm talking about something a little more important than that. I'm talking about the arguing of this. I desperately want to do this, but my body wants me to do something else. And the arguing that takes place between the two. I want to do what my God wants me to do. My body selfishly wants to do what I want to do. Even when the repercussions of those decisions can be painful at times for those around me, not to mention myself. I mean, Life's toll on our bodies. And the result of that is this, a desire to be finished. To be done with it. There's a reason why Paul said to live as Christ. But living for Christ is not easy. To die is gain. If you continue to look through verse 4 there, you're going to see something else. Some powerful words. It says, for indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Man, what an incredible word picture painted there. What is mortal, what is temporary may be swallowed up by life. You know, uh, I'm meaning to say it this time. 1 Corinthians 15. Amazing passage of scriptures that should be dove into much more often than at funeral services. It's an incredible passage of scripture about what awaits God's people, the followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus removed the sting of death, taking away the burden of sin. And it tells us this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. And this mortal thing that we've been walking around in, all right, 
will be replaced by the immortal. This perishable thing will be replaced by the imperishable. Understand something, guys. When you look at verse 4 and it's talking about this place that's being prepared for us, does this look to you like a building? It says this, we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. I'm telling you, what is being prepared isn't so much about brick and mortar. It's more about this. It's clothing. It's a body. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. Heaven will be a place. We're not just going to be floating, hovering around in heaven. Heaven is a physical place to be enjoyed with physical bodies. And our God is preparing that abode for us right now. Get this, a body that no longer argues. That's heaven. That is heaven. Do you understand me? A body that no longer argues with me. That is heaven. Not only this, a body that can thrive in the presence of God. Let me tell you something, folks. If God were to show up on this stage right now, there's not one person in this room who would survive the encounter physically. Don't get me wrong. You, you have, we all have souls. Those souls are eternal. But these bodies, not happening. Not happening. Not going to survive it. But as I speak this, our God is preparing a body for you that will not only survive in God's presence, will thrive in the glory of God for eternity. We have reason to be confident followers of Jesus Christ. We have reason, incredible reason to be confident when we ponder the future. But Jesus was not just a builder. Yes, he's a builder and he's a good one. All right, But he's not just a builder. If you turn now to the next part of this passage, you will see something. There are consequences of confidence. If we are confident in our future, there will be ramifications for that in this life, the life which we live right now. Look at verse 6. I told you, we're going to come back to verse 5. I know I didn't say much about it yet, but we're gonna, we'll come back there, okay? Verse 6. Therefore, always being of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in these bodies, in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, Jesus is not just a builder. He's a judge. And make no mistake about it, just because you and I know Jesus, Savior and Lord does not mean we will not be judged. Every one of us will be judged by Jesus. 
What's that mean for us? How does it make you feel? Make you feel a little apprehensive? Listen closely to this. To fear God's judgment is a sign that God is at work to save a person from it. That's probably worth repeating. To fear God's judgment. For a person to fear God's judgment, this is a sign that God is at work to save a person from it. Unbelievers do not fear the judgment of God. You don't believe me? Go to any sort of social media source you want to go to. Unbelievers do not fear that judgment. If they did, they would repent. They would change. One of the sharpest guys to ever walk the face of this earth. His name was Solomon. He was the son of of King David of the Old Testament. And he was so sharp because he asked for wisdom from God. And God gave him wisdom. This is what he has to say about wisdom. This guy that was given wisdom by God. He said it on more than one occasion in his Proverbs. He said this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's so amazing that, and and, and many times it's true, that fear and confidence are often seen as opposites, that they don't even live in the same realm, okay? And that's why we tell people, don't be afraid, come on, be strong, you can do this. Be aggressive. B-A-G-R-E-S-S-I-V-E, aggressive. You remember that? Any cheerleaders here? Did you ever do that one? Is that old school or something? Uh, ah, yeah, I saw a hand go up back there. All right, still around, still around. Yeah, because, man, you can't have, you can't be fearful and have confidence at the same time. You can't, can you? Oh, I beg to differ. One of the most amazing paradoxes in the life of any follower of Jesus Christ is this. Both fear and confidence are alive and well in the heart of a believer. How? And why? Is that the truth? Okay, I told you we're going to jump back into verse 5. For me, i got to turn my page, all right? Go back to verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5. Let's take a look at it again. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. Now, that's what's amazing. Jesus is preparing the place. What's God doing? He's preparing us. For the place. That's just an amazing unity and harmony of of work and goals there because that's what takes place in the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together to this purpose. Sorry, Chase the scroll there just for a second. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Maybe your Bible says something a little bit different than pledge. If you look to the Greek, you're going to see a word. Now, if you're, if you're a little bit longer in the tooth, this is a, this is a term that you will recognize. And maybe some of you younger ones will recognize it. But it's not as recognizable these days by most because it's been replaced by another term. And, and the term is this, earnest. 
All right, I'm not talking about Ernest Saves Christmas. All right, I liked Ernest, but this is a different Ernest. This isn't a name. This is Ernest. Has anybody heard of an Ernest payment before? They've kind of, that's like disappeared. You don't hear much about it anymore. Now it's been replaced by a down payment. And, and you know if you've done a mortgage that if you want a good, you want a good interest rate, you better have a little bit of a down payment built up, okay? All right, because that's important. Well, back in the day, it was an earnest payment because what it meant was this. It's showing the person that I'm buying whatever from that I am earnest about this. This is just a preview of what is to come. I will continue to pay you until this debt is paid in full. Now apply that to God. His earnest payment to us, not that he owes us anything. He gives us everything. And the promise that he gives us everything, his earnest payment is the Holy Spirit. That he's given to us here and now. And the crazy thing about this, the amazing thing about this, that it's Jesus who made this arrangement possible. Jesus told his closest followers, he said... He said, I have to go. Don't you understand? It is better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, the helper can't come. Jesus prepared the way for the Holy Spirit to come and reside in us as his people. Now, here's the thing, folks. This is where this gets very important. This is where verse 5 ties in with verse 10. You see, it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to please God. Now understand something. Make no mistake. This is important. It's those and only those who please God who can have confidence now and in the future because heaven will be made up only of people who please God. So here's a question. Well, preacher, how do we please God? We do good. We pray a lot. We go to church. See, pleasing God is much more foundational than those individual actions. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again with verse 5 very clearly in our rearview mirror now. Okay. Therefore, always being of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, what's this? To be pleasing to Him. How do we please God? Look at verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We please God when we live by faith. I've got that written right in the top of my Bible. If you write in your Bible, that is a great thing to write in your Bible right now. Right by verse 7. Put a little arrow right beside it and say, We please God when we live by faith. 
Now, when you look to the Bible and you see the word faith, and it's in the context of this, our faith in God, you can, vast majority of the time, right, right beside that word faith. I'm going to tell you, faith's, faith's awesome. Faith's important. I mean, greatest of these is love, but there's faith, hope, and love, all right? <laughs> right? So I'm not going to tell you to mark out faith, but I want you to understand something, what faith is equal to. Faith is equal to trust. what it is every single day God speaks to his people through his spirit and what he says is this it's a question and this is the question do you trust me how do we please God Trusting him. That's how we please God. It's the way the Spirit works. The Spirit gives instruction. The Spirit says, do this. Sometimes the Spirit says, don't do that. And oftentimes... When that argument I talked about earlier begins, <laughs> it's like my selfishness wants to fight against what the Spirit is telling me. The question is asked by the Spirit. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do not... If you get nothing else today, folks, get this. Heaven will be full of people who trust their maker. The consequence of confidence, of trust in God, the consequences of that is this. You and I, we live out our trust in God every single day. Because I'm going to tell you, sometimes what the Spirit tells you to do, you're not going to want to do it. But do you trust God enough to do it anyway? Jesus makes all of this possible. He's the reason. He truly is the reason for the season. And I'm telling you, there is... Whoa, Man alive, if we were to write an exhaustive, good luck, list of everything Jesus has done for us, it would take a while. But I'm going to throw a few of them out there for you when I look at this passage of Scripture right here. This is what Jesus did for you and for me. Jesus left his home so he could bring us home. Got it? He left his glory so he could bring us glory. He left his home so that he could bring us home. Jesus, you know what else he did? He paid the price to make us worthy. He paid the price to make us worthy. He is making bodies for us. I guess this is more along the lines of what Jesus did and what Jesus is doing. He's making bodies for us that are eternal and that can thrive in the presence, the glorious presence of God. Not shrink back in fear, 
but thrive in God's glorious presence. Jesus is not only the only way to the Father. She is. He's the only way. He made the way to God available to us. He is the only way. But he also, this is amazing, because he it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. You see, Jesus also made the way available for the Spirit to live in us now. And not only all of this, Jesus is also an all-powerful promise keeper. He keeps his word every single time. And his promise is simple and yet profound. This is his promise to you and me. I'm bringing you home. For this reason, brothers and sisters, we have confidence. This is why he came to earth. It's not always easy to trust God. You know how I know it's not always easy to trust God? I can't, I I could give you example after example from my own life, but there's a more profound example than that. Do you know the writer of Hebrews tells us a little something about Jesus that's really quite amazing. It would almost sound sacrilegious if it wasn't Bible. The writer says that Jesus learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. Let me tell you a little bit about a time that Jesus had to trust his father. And it didn't have to do with a manger. It had to do with a garden. When Jesus, sweating drops of blood, fell on his face before the father and said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You see, Jesus was beginning to feel the burden that he was destined to carry. For those of you who've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, do you remember that burden of sin? Do you remember the freedom experienced when you are raised a brand new person? You went to that watery grave and you came out and you're like, I'm free. The burden of sin was lifted from your shoulders and it's something you can't fully comprehend enough to even be able to explain it to someone of what that was like. It's just amazing. Because that burden was so heavy. And let me tell you something. You are carrying nobody's sin but whose? Your own. Jesus Christ carried the sins of the world upon his shoulders. He knew that is, he was already beginning to feel it. 
And it was only going to get worse. And he said to his father, he said, if there's any other way. But there was. And he said, but not my will, but yours be done. You know what he's really saying when he said that? He's saying, Father, I trust you. This is the plan. And I'm going to accomplish my part. 